Have you ever heard of the squeaky wheel syndrome? Anybody ever heard of that? How does it go? The squeaky wheel gets, gets the oil or gets the grease. Okay, The squeaky wheel gets the oil. So in other words, the way we understand that is everyone else in a situation adjusts, right, in order to accommodate the person who's the squeaky wheel. Did you ever have a child who was a squeaky wheel? Is anybody willing to confess to being the squeaky wheel this morning? Okay, do we have any squeaky wheels out there? Okay, we've got a few, all right. The rest of you aren't telling the truth. How about a colleague at work, huh? The squeaky wheel, like they're, they're the ones always making noise, getting all the attention. How about a relative, huh? Thanksgiving, Christmas. Anybody got somebody in mind now? Or are you ready to fess up? Okay, squeaky wheels. They're all around us. What about a friend or, or maybe someone you dated? Huh? Were they a squeaky wheel? Always needing a little bit of attention. <coughs> you know, several years ago, I was in a position where I was determined that I was not going to squeak. I was going to be self-sufficient and not need help. But after a couple of years of persisting in this position, I realized, you know, I, I was going to need some help. And so I started to do a little squeaking. And I learned something about this statement. Unfortunately, what I didn't realize is that the wheel who squeaks first is a project. You know what I'm saying? The wheel who squeaks first, you, you kind of, they get your attention. You kind of accept the fact, okay, this person's going to squeak. And I'm going to need to give them a little bit of extra care. But the wheel who squeaks late becomes a problem. So the wheel who squeaks first is a project. The wheel who squeaks late, it's like, hey, we, we've come to depend on this person. This person doesn't need help. This person doesn't need attention. All of a sudden, they start squeaking. <laughs> this, this person's a problem. So that's actually what happened to me. As I started squeaking, and they said, man, this guy's a problem. And as a result, my character <coughs> called into question. It's a really difficult season for me. Now, I remember quoting the Apostle Paul at the time, and I said, my conscience is clear, guys, but that doesn't make me innocent. And looking back, you know, I didn't need those people to tell me things that weren't true, to tell me that it's okay, and that I didn't need to change, but I did need them to be personal. You know, there was a man in the midst of that situation named Jody, I actually emailed him this week to tell him thanks. He was not partial to either party, and so he could see the situation objectively. He saw what was going on. He didn't take sides, but he didn't let me off the hook either. He challenged me to evaluate my role in the situation. And because he was very personal, I remember he sat down with me multiple times and had a very heart-to-heart -heart chat and gave me some really good advice. But because he was personal, I was willing to heed his uncomfortable advice. Now, none of us would claim to be without sin or fault. Anybody in here like that? No way. But we do need someone who can both see the situation objectively and who cares about our restoration, who cares about our well-being. When we're going through something hard, we don't need facts, and we certainly don't need speculation. That's what Job's been struggling with. His friends are declaring, hey, we know what's going on, Job. Bad things happen to guilty people, which means you are one. What we need most in hard times is connection. We need someone who is willing to come down where we are and hear us 
You know, we've been on quite a journey with Job. In week one, we've talked about how Job was willing, in the midst of shock, to delay judgment and at least temporarily place trust in the gap between what he had come to expect of God and what he was at that point experiencing. In week two, we saw how Job chose to move beyond denial and uncork his emotions in order to move toward acceptance. He chose to both engage and express how he felt. Last week, we saw how Job persevered with both his faith and reputation under fire. He refused to be bullied, and he was determined to take personal ownership of his journey. And as we discussed last week, you know, at this point, Job's friends are still engaging him. They're trying to prove their point. They're trying to get him to accept reality. But Job has really stopped talking to them. He's realized that this situation is one they're not equipped to handle. This is above their pay grade. And though he fears God, and he mentions that, which we mentioned last week, he knows instinctively that he needs to hear from God. He doesn't necessarily need for God to declare him innocent. He doesn't need for God to take his side, but he does need to hear from God. He just needs confirmation that God is there. He needs to know that God is still Turn with me to Job chapter 9. And the first point this morning is that Job pleads for a response. That's what he's been up to. And he's about to reiterate that plea. Chapter 9, verse, beginning in verse 1. Then Job replied, Indeed, I know that this is true. But how can a mortal be more righteous than God? His friends had already made that point. He's agreeing with it. Though one wished to dispute with him, he could not answer him one time out of a thousand. His wisdom is profound. His power is vast. Who has resisted him and come out unscathed? In other words, Job is saying, I have something to say. You know, I'm upset about what's happened to me. But even if I had a chance to say it, what would that be like? You know, when life hurts you and me, we also have something to say. We have a story to tell. We want to respond to what's happening to us. But what if we actually had an audience with and were in the presence of God? That's what Job's considering. Would it change the way we deliver our complaint? Can you imagine? I mean, that's what we want. We want to say, tell God what we think, but what if you actually had the chance? Would it change the way you delivered your message? And that's what Job is contemplating. Verse 14. How then can I dispute with him? How can I find words to argue with him? Though I were innocent, I could not answer him. I could only plead with my judge for mercy. So Job recognizes that were he to actually have this opportunity, debate would kind of be unproductive. If he finally gets to the person with authority and realizes he has no case, he would likely just throw himself on the mercy of the court. And I was going to mentioned Judge Charles this morning. I'm sure many times he's had people just begin pleading, you know, with him, begging for him to have mercy. And why is that? You know, if Job actually got in God's presence and he imagines that he's going to state his case, more than likely he's going to be reduced to just begging. And why is it? Because he's finally in the presence of somebody with the authority to do something about it. All along, Job has been struggling and suffering, and he's been talking to these people who can't change his situation. And he's just longing to be in the presence of somebody, anybody who can do something 
about it. So he would just throw himself on the mercy of the court. You know, a number of years back, we decided to take a trip. And I had heard that you could drive all the way from the south, southwest tip of China through Laos, which is directly beneath it, and drive all the way to Thailand. And so I kind of got really excited about that. I did my internet research. I had, we had a van. It wasn't a great van. It, did, it, it was a stick shift. No cruise control, no air conditioning. And Laos is hot and Thailand's hot. But I was going to do it anyway. You know, I was going to do this big thing. So I did all my research, and we, we traveled 11 hours down to the Lao border, traveled four hours across. We got to the Lao border with Thailand, which actually, there was no road and there was no bridge. We had to take a ferry with my vehicle across. And so we, we, we stayed the night, and we were so excited to get down there. We were going to get on the ferry, so I lined, queued up with my car, and uh, I was ready to go. And then I got to talking with the officials, and they looked through all my paperwork, and was that pause, and I was missing something. There was one little bitty piece of paper that I didn't have that I needed to have, and they weren't going to let my car on the ferry. And we were very upset. I mean, it got to the point where there were tears shed, trying to plead with these guys to just make an exception. Okay, that was me. <laughs> I wasn't going to point any fingers. They were, they were inside tears for me, expressed in anger. Um, so, I didn't have the piece of paper, and we were pleading with them to let us across and make an exception, and then some kind of seedy fellow comes out of the woodwork, he's from across the border, and he says, let me see what I can do. So, I, I'm desperate at this point. I mean, if, if he asked me to give him money, I probably would have given him money to, to try to make it go away or, or, or resolve it, and so, but he couldn't fix it either. And so, we were pleading with them to make an exception, but the, po the, the point was is they didn't have the authority. There was nothing they could do. Their hands were tied. And so Job's imagining a time when he's going to be in the presence of God, the person who has the authority. And what would that be like? And how would he respond? And in the end, they didn't let us through. They didn't make an exception. So I actually had to park my van in an alley beside the hotel. We were staying out, pay them a little bit of money and pray that nobody stole it while we were gone. There was actually another guy that came and said, oh, just park it in my village and, and we'll watch out for you. So I declined that invitation. So this is where Job is at. Verse 20. Even if I were innocent, my mouth would condemn me. If I were blameless, it would pronounce me guilty. So there's no way for Job to talk himself out of this one. Proverbs 18.17 says, In a lawsuit, the first person to speak seems right until the cross-examination begins. But again, Job's back is against the wall. He's struggling to understand why no one else is capable of satisfying his questions. So even though he expects he will not be able to prevail, if he gets an audience with God, he's still compelled to do anything he can to try to engage God. Now, how do we typically respond with unanswered questions? We ignore them. We ask someone. We read something, right? Maybe we pray. And then lastly, we provoke, right? If I'm not satisfied, if I'm not getting the answers I'm looking for, I'm going to do something to get somebody's attention, even if I have to misbehave to get it. You know, many times um, when our dogs, they crave our attention. They'll, they'll beg, they'll plead for our attention. And if they don't get it, anything that's left unattended is fair game. I mean, it might be a chewed up sock, 
It might be a destroyed book. I mean, you name it, they've destroyed it. But it always, it's a, always a familiar set of circumstances. We forget to put them in the cubby. We leave them out. And then we ignore them. And so they misbehave in order to get our attention. And I think that's what's going on here. Is Job, he's acting out a little bit. He's saying things he wouldn't normally say because he's upset. He's in pain. And he's acting out a bit in order to get attention. And he's about to get his wish. I'm in Job chapter 38. This is one of my favorite passages, even though it's in the midst of really hard things, because you get to hear directly from God. You'll feel the full force of Job's encounter with God as we read it, a select number of verses. Beginning in verse 1, chapter 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm. He said, Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. So Job's been asking the questions. He's been provoking God to give a response. And here is God's response. Verse 4. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand who marked off its dimensions. I mean, it's a rhetorical question, right? Obviously God did. Surely you know who stretches... A measuring line across it on what were its footings set, or who laid its cornerstone. While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy, who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness. When I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place. When I said, this far you may come and no farther. Here is where your proud waves and throughout this section, chapter 38 and a good bit of 39, God's main topic is, is about creation. He focuses on a topic that only the Creator could intelligently discuss. And so he asks some questions of Job. He says, where were you at the beginning? Have you been where I've been? Can you do what I can do? Have you seen what I've seen? And then he puts forth some impressive qualifications. He says, God cares creation. God understands creation. God designed creation. God directs creation. He's in charge. Large animals, it says, are like pets to him. God endows wisdom. You know what Job has charged him with? Injustice. He says, God judges the wicked. Skip on over to chapter 40. We'll see Job's response to God's speech this far. Chapter 40, verse 1, the Lord said to Job, will the one content, who contends with the Almighty correct him? Because that's what's happening. Job's contending with God. He's got, he's got a complaint. He's got an issue with God. He wants to hear from God. So God says, will, will you correct me? Let him who accuses God answer him. And if it were you or I in this situation, I think this is how we would respond. Then Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. He says, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I have nothing to say. But hold on, there's, a, there's hope at the end of the story. We'll get to it in just a few moments. Verse 6. 
Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm, Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? So he says, Job, what are you doing here? I mean, you're, you're, want, you're willing to throw me under the bus to justify yourself. And God is challenging Job, but I would submit to you that in an implicit message, what God is saying here, when Job's saying, God's responsible, it's God's fault, God's behind this, God's saying, I'm not the enemy, Job. I know things are rotten. I know things are terrible. But Job, I'm not the enemy. I'm not unjust. And Job is on dangerous ground here. If he decides that either that God is against him or that God is indifferent to him, where does that leave Job? I mean, if God ceases to be your ally, the one that you're looking to, the one that your hope is in, what are you left with? This is an important question for you and I to consider when life hurts us. You know, if we accuse God and turn our back on him, what are we turning and this is where people make some of their most tragic choices in life. You know, when they feel like there's nothing left and that God's not for them, that maybe God's even against them, and they turn their back on them. What are you turning your back to? If you turn away from God, what are you turning to? You're turning to something. So when their career ends and people slip into depression, when their marriage fails and they rush on to what's next, when their boredom and lack of purpose lead them to crave things that will not satisfy, because the truth is, if God is out of the picture, then nothing is off the table. Anything goes. And I'm willing to do whatever it takes to get what I think I want. And then we make tragic choices. And in Job's case, it would have been to take his own life. He's made that clear. He's done. And his unanswered questions would have haunted the people who cared about him most. In light of his, you know, intentional departure. But thankfully for you and I, Job has chosen to persevere in order to get to this point. And with nothing left to lose in his character in question, Job has been making an impassioned, an impassioned plea for a response. And now he's getting what he asked for. Job chapter 41 primarily is God talking about an imposing creature called Leviathan. A large sea beast. Imagine that kids, there are large sea beasts in the Bible. Just look at it, Job chapter 41. God describes Leviathan's raw and fearsome power that makes him unassailable to man. Pick it up in verse 7. He says, can you fill his hide with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? If you lay a hand on him, you will remember them, struggle, and never do it again. Any hope of subduing him is false. The mere sight of him is overpowering. No one is fierce enough to rouse him. Who then is able to stand against me? Who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. So what God's comparing himself to Leviathan. He said, to me, I can control this beast. He's like a pet to me. And if you're afraid of him, shouldn't you fear me? Who can stand against me? Who do, who do I owe something to? But what's interesting is that God says, I don't owe you an explanation. I don't owe you anything, Job. Then why is he responding to Job? There's hope here. What, what was it about Job that caused God to actually 
dignify him with a response. I mean, God comes personally down to interact with this little bit of human. Who's the, he's, he's interacting with the squeaky wheel. Job's not important, but God cares enough about Job to come interact with him personally. I would say it's because he cares about Job. God can see the situation objectively from 50,000 feet, and he cares about Job's restoration. So here he comes to interact with Job personally. And he's not giving him easy answers. Maybe not the answers that... He doesn't even really give Job answers. But he does show up and interact with Job personally. And God cares about Job's restoration, but he knows that Job's heart has to be prepared first. So had Job been a different person, I think he would have received a different response. You know, sometimes you and I need to be reminded that we're small and that we're accountable. Otherwise, both we and our loved ones are unsafe. You ever met people that are big and unaccountable? They got the money, they got the position we have overseas. Remember this guy walking through an airport one time, he was a good, good sized fellow, smoking his really expensive cigarettes. He had an entourage of little girls surrounding him. Bragging about all the places he'd been. He was a government official. You ever met somebody like that? They're big. They answer to no one. Are they safe? Are the people who work for them safe? Are their families safe? So we need, just like Job needed to be reminded, that we're small and that we're accountable. Job needed to realize two things that would change our society if we would embrace them. Number one, this isn't about you. That's what God is saying. Job, I know this is a big deal in your life. I know that you're hurt. I know that you're suffering. But this isn't about you. And Job, you're accountable. You're accountable for your words. You're accountable for your actions. But somehow this isn't a discouraging message for Job. As we'll see, this is a message of hope because God cared enough to respond to him personally. Turn to Job chapter 42 and we see how this resolves. Verse 1. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. So the key thought this morning is that in pain, what you and I long for most is a response from God. And so Job all throughout this book, ever since his trial began, has been longing for this encounter with God. And now his personal encounter with Almighty God satisfies him. In the end, it's, this encounter with God is enough to satisfy Job. And I suspect his provocative speeches up to this point were delivered in order to elicit such a response. So lastly, Job 
responds or submits himself to God. Continuing on in verse 7, we see what happens as a result. After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Job, who's held on barely by the skin of his teeth, to the end, protesting, proclaiming his innocence. He had, he's delayed judgment. He's, he's taken personal ownership. He's persevered, and now he's vindicated. So now take seven bowls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you, and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. So these people who thought they had it all figured out, they're now held accountable. So Elmaphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite did what the Lord told them to do, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. After Job had told his friends, had prayed for his friends, the Lord made him prosperous again and gave him twice as much as he had before. So Job's encounter with God ultimately satisfied him. That's what, that's what he wanted. He didn't need simple answers. He didn't need to be declared innocent. He didn't need somebody to say nice things or to, or to say harsh things. He just needed somebody to come where he was at to hear him and to respond to him personally. Now we feel like when life hurts us, nothing can replace what we've lost. Nothing. And that's true. But trusting God brings hope of a brighter tomorrow. Saw a picture on Facebook this week. A friend of mine several years back went through a really difficult divorce. There was betrayal involved. He went through a really hard, soul-searching time. And several years later, he was patient. And God brought the right person into his life. And I got to see photos of them in their joy and their excitement as they're married. And I just thought about that this week. Is, is we, when, we, when we're going through hard things and, and life hurts us, if we'll hang on, if we'll cling to and keep the faith, it's not going to take away what we've experienced. It's not going to take away the hurt. It's not going to completely heal the wounds, but it does give us hope of a brighter tomorrow. So what's it going to take for you to move through your hardship? What will it take for you to accept what God has allowed in your life? The bottom line is we're going to need to contend with God in order to complete the journey. We've got to realize it's not about us. It's not about other people who've hurt us. Our issue is with God and what he has chosen to allow into our lives. So if you're in the, right in the middle of some, going through something, where are you at in this process? Maybe it's very early for you. You just need to delay judgment. You know, don't try to figure it out. Just, just place trust in the gap between who you've come to know God to be and what you're now experiencing. Maybe that's what you need to do. Maybe it's time for you to uncork the bottle. Maybe you've got stuff that's bottled up in there and you need to let it out. And begin to sort through the emotions to get to the facts. Maybe you're in the perseverance stage where you just need to take personal ownership of your journey in order to cling to the key faith. Or maybe this is where you are today. You've been through the full process and you're at a point of decision. That's what I'm asking you to consider in just a moment. What is that thing that God's allowed in your life that you went through, that you're going through? You just need to give to Him. Say, God, I'm, I, I'm finally at that place. 
where I can accept that you've allowed this. And I can choose to trust not only that you're that you are aware of it and that you allowed it, but that you love me and that you still have good plans for me. Imagine the potential for a group of people whose testimonies have been forged in the crucible of hardship. A group of people who took the difficult journey through pain in order to arrive at acceptance. A group of people pleading for a response from God who were eventually able to submit to Him and be restored by Him. And that's a lot better than the alternative. Because you and I know and we've seen when you turn your back on God, you're turning towards something. And, and if you've been there or you know people who've gone there, you don't want to go there. It just, it's just tragedy upon tragedy. My prayer is that I can be this kind of person and that you can be this kind of person when unwelcome opportunities come because nobody's asking for them. Nobody's asking for the pain. Nobody's asking for the hardship. Nobody's asking for the loss or the grief or the betrayal. But it comes. And God has allowed it. And what are we going to do with it? Pray. God, thank you for this morning and for this series, God, as we have been forced to confront some hard truths that even though you're a good God and that we can trust you with all that we have, and with all we are, that God, there are times when you choose to allow hard things into our lives. You choose to allow things to happen to us that hurt us, that affect us, that change us, Lord. And as we engage the process of getting from all the way from denial to acceptance, God, we're going to need your help. We're going to need the help of friends. We're going to need the help of your word so that we can get to that place where we can contend with you, God. We can bring our case before you. We can express ourselves to you and that you will respond. And that's all that we want, God. We want to know that you love us. We want to know that you're still God and that we can trust you. It's in Jesus' name I pray.